You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello and welcome to episode 157 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Christina Bieber-Lake and with me today are Dandy Anderson, who is a special guest from the Sectarian Podcast, and Sarah Thomas. Hello, Danny and Sarah. Hello. Hello. So let's introduce ourselves for any listeners who are new to the program. And uh, Danny, could you start out? Sure. Uh, I'm Danny Anderson. I host the Sectarian Review Podcast. I've been on this show a few times, this is three or four times now, I think, for the Christian Feminist Podcast. But my day job is teaching English at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania, where I am an associate professor now. And uh, I don't really think I need to add anything else to that. Okay, how about you, Sarah? Hi, I'm Sarah Thomas, and uh, I am currently teaching in the... um, in the secondary sphere uh, in the metro Atlanta area where I am uh, currently living with my husband and our two dogs. And we are on Thanksgiving break as of this afternoon. So it's a very exciting (laughs) evening in our house. Hallelujah. It's always an exciting (laughs) evening when teachers go on break, (laughs) right? Um, I'm Christina Bieber Lake. I um, have taught at Wheaton for well, it's my 23rd year, although I'm not actually teaching because I have a research fellowship. Praise the Lord. This is the happiest Thanksgiving I have ever had uh, because I'm not teaching, which is terrible. I love teaching, but it's kind of nice to, to have a break. But anyway, we are excited to be talking about the Netflix series that share with Sandra O. Oh, and uh, this series drew my eye because I have been teaching in an English department for, as I said, 23 years. So all of the politics, all the stuff, it just, you know, came a little, hit a little close to home, let's put it that way. So <laughs> I wanted to, a chance to talk about that and bring up all the interesting issues that it raises. So I thought I'd just start out and just say, what, what interested you guys about the show? What are, you know, what drew you to it? What did you like, dislike? Just whatever you guys want to start talking about, I thought would be a good place to start. Well, I can go uh First, on that one, um, one of the things I, I flirted briefly uh, with a teaching career in higher education and ended up figuring out uh, eventually that secondary ed was probably going to be uh, my home um, or was probably going to be a better fit for me. And so as I was watching particularly these first three episodes, I was reminded of some of the potential concerns that I had had about my you know, about my own potential career in higher ed. And so, yeah, I hit a little close to home, but also in a wry sort of way and without casting aspersions at all, uh, kind of reminded me of some of the reasons why I had ultimately decided to pursue secondary ed. Um, I did find one of the things that I really liked, um, and I think we uh, we may talk about it a little bit later in the show, is um, 
how Sandra O's character um, has chosen to um, has chosen to pursue her own uh, motherhood and how she is navigating family and a career in education and a career uh, in education that involves, um, you know, a pretty high level of visibility as she takes on the chairship for the department. And I, I found in particular those moments when she was trying to work with her, uh, you know, with her daughter, uh, very touching and, mm-hmm. um, and affirming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're definitely going to talk about her as that chair and, and sort of the main protagonist of the series. So, so yeah, that'll be one of the first things we talked about. But what about you, Danny? Mm-hmm. What was uh, interesting to you? Well, um, <laughs> so I have kind of a, a, a mixed feeling about this show, to be honest with you. Um, it's really well made and acted and, and entertaining. And I love all the actors in it. I mean, so many of them I recognize from beloved shows that I've seen before. Right. And, uh, and, and so I, I really did enjoy it on a kind of just kind of entertainment formal level, I suppose. Um, I, I really struggled relating to it, to be honest with you. I, uh, uh, I don't work in a realm of higher education that looks anything like this. And so I felt that it was a bit of a, it's kind of a, like a fantasy version of higher ed in, in a lot of ways. And I feel like for me, it, the way I described it when I first saw it was that this is what this is written by people whose idea of higher education comes wholly from Twitter debates about higher education. And so I, I feel like, uh, like so many of the, the political sort of arguments that this show engages with are really from that realm that I've never kind of had any kind of experience dealing with in the places that I've worked. Um, I mean, there are other sorts of like political battles that you always have in, in any workplace, of course, but, um, but my, my experience doesn't look anything like this at all. And, and so I, I was a little put off for it. Um, I, and I also sort of, I said, but I'm fine with like a fantastic version of higher ed. I actually did my um, dissertation. I wrote my dissertation on higher ed, uh, narratives from the Jewish American tradition. And huh. so um, I, I, it's a, a favorite genre of mine. And I, I love all of these movies. Oh, I, wow. any, I, I don't have any kind of uh, expectation that they're realistic. Right. <laughs> and so I think uh, um, I'm fine with the sort of fantastic version of higher ed. Um, I just couldn't really relate to this one. And I also I felt I mean, I guess we could talk about it later when we talk about the politics of it. I feel like it it it's making very conservative and liberal talking points in very sort of reductive ways, I think. And so I found it Mm. sort of like overly shorthanded, I suppose. Um, But, and I, I, but to be generous, um, this is difficult for me to uh, actually talk bad about a work of art. I, I'm at a place in my life where I don't really like to, call something good or bad when somebody took the time to create right <laughs> and so I, I i don't want to necessarily deal uh with it on that level but i felt like this is to higher ed as gray's anatomy is to actual working in a hospital right and so i feel like this is uh, uh the sandra O oh is in this is perfect i think in that way so, uh, so i have very uh, oh sort of yeah mixed feelings about this show uh-huh yeah, well, of mm. course, you're always going to get the Hollywood version, right, of, of of higher ed. But it's kind of also true that higher ed's become a little bit of a circus. And so the stuff that I found myself laughing at and cringing at was just like, yeah, the, you know, I've experienced this. And if I don't laugh at it, I'm going to cry. 
you know, so, <laughs> right. Um, but yes. I mean, I was drawn immediately just from the opening scene that they was using as a, not, what do you call that, that uh, lead in the, what's, why can't I come up with a word for that thing that tells you about the show and tries to get you to watch it? Uh, uh, trailer trailer yeah from the trailer when she goes in there and it's just like this amazing institution and now i'm chair and i sit back there you know and then the chair breaks you know uh it, <laughs> it, 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 i was immediately drawn to that because it, it's so much a, about higher ed and about college teaching is glamorized usually in in hollywood productions and then there's so much of it that's just not glamorous at all. And I thought that the show did a pretty good job of, of um, you know, kind of tapping into that a little bit. So the setting, if, for those of you who might be listening that have, you know, haven't seen it, is really meant to be kind of like an elite Eastern college with, uh, with, a his, with an English department that's very old and with a really strong history of good teaching and, and so on. And that's the kind of school that I went to as an undergraduate, so I could relate to that. And I remember my undergraduate professors telling me that, that um, they didn't get paid very well because they, because they should have just been glad for the honor of teaching at Princeton, you know, kind of thing. And this is very thinly veiled, like a Pembroke and and has the same kind of shield as Princeton does. So it's obviously supposed to be this kind of Eastern college thing. Um, so I, I actually found some similarities to um, to that whole world just from watching it that um, that I was a part of. But but yeah, my current job isn't, isn't like that at all. Yeah. <laughs> but let's talk about uh, Ji-Hoon, uh, June. Ji-Yoon, I think that's how you pronounce it. Is that correct? Um, I can't remember because she doesn't... Her, I think that's right. Yeah, she doesn't get her name. I is think that's right, yes. She, let's talk about her as a chair and, and as a mother um, and kind of the way that the show deals with that. Because, Sarah, you had mentioned that that was interesting to you, and I want to know what, how, what you found sort of realistic or unrealistic about that. Uh, one of the things that I, that I found myself sympathizing with most about her presentation particularly in those scenes is the 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 care and the strain on her face as she seems to feel torn between um you know wanting to you know wanting to uphold her professional commitments and do you know do justice to her position as chair and her awareness of her position as the first female chair of the English department with the obvious care and concern that she has for Juju and, um, and how she really, she really seems to feel the strain and the anxiety of having to constantly leave Juju somewhere else, you know, to not be with her when she seems to, you know, seems to look through her, her gesture and the concern on her face that she wants to stay and she wants to spend time. And I think that, 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 uh, yeah, that's sort of trying to navigate that balance and, and seeming to feel there are time there are moments when I think Sandra Oh does a really nice job of embodying the seeming frustration with, you know, I guess feeling like she might be struggling to accomplish everything she wants to as chair, but also feeling like she's struggling to be the mom that she has wanted to. And mm -hmm. one of the ways that I think is really, um, 
is really touching, and I actually just watched it before we jumped on the call, um, is the scene when, um, oh gosh, when, um, oh my goodness, when Bill uh, tells Juju, you know, your mom waited a long time for you. Mm -hmm. She had an outfit all picked out and a stroller by the door for two years waiting mm -hmm. for the phone call that you were going to come into her life. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, I found that really, I find that really touching. And that seems to me to resonate just conversationally with, um, or, you know, or anecdotally rather with conversations that I've had with friends of mine who are trying to balance, you know, similar commitments, mm -hmm. uh, you know, professionally and personally and struggling to find you know, those places where, um, you know, those places where, uh, you know, the care for family has to, you know, has to win out over mm -hmm. going back to the faculty dinner party, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, or, uh, you know, for the sake of, you know, sustaining those bonds with family members. And, um, and yeah, I just watched the bowling scene, which I thought was great. Oh, that was um, so good. Yeah. <laughs> I really love that scene. Yeah, and, and it's so interesting to me what the show does with her character and her difference from Bill. And Bill is, I mean, all the characters are stereotyped, right? I mean, that's what makes funny. That's what makes it comedy. But he is totally the white male privileged, like, popular professor who kind of just getting away with anything that he wants to do. So I, I think it's just one of the funniest opening scenes I've ever seen in any series when she's like there at the English de department meeting <laughs> explaining how English is being tanked and so many people it's under enrolled and we're all teaching values and, and then, then they're showing Bill who's just getting drunk at the airport after having oh, yeah. his, and then hijacks the yeah. golf cart because he yeah. can't find his car yeah. <laughs> you know and he can get away with this right because the students love him um and and you know I, I, that has definitely been the case uh in my experience that the that the female faculty members it's like you've got to work a little bit harder show you know show yourself a little bit more uh, to be involved and be approved or whatever. And, and, you know, that's a reality in higher ed, that the people who don't have tenure or the people who are, you know, uh, in the minority, whatever, kind of have to, or, you know, just being women, have to be the ones who stay later at the faculty party, have to watch their P's and Q's, you know, a little more carefully until they're able to get to, get to where they can have more of the power. And, of course, the show works on this mostly through the character of, of Yaz and, her being obviously a really gifted teacher and then being forced to share a classroom with the Melville scholar guy. Uh, his name is Elliot. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is a perennial thing in academia, right? The young Turks versus the old school people and how much power the old school people have over the young Turks. You know, mm -hmm. I'm going to be on your tenure committee and, you know, uh, and I could thank you. I mean, he could. He could just decide. Mm -hmm that he doesn't want her to be promoted. And I think the show, you know, that's why I'm saying it makes you laugh and cringe because it's like, yeah, that, that's real. That happens. Mm -hmm. and, and then on top of that, trying to have a child, trying to have a family life when so much of yourself is being pulled away is what every woman faculty member faces. I mean, that's not to say that men don't, but it's different, I think, for, uh, for women. And I also think it's interesting that that, that uh, they had a child who's difficult, right? <laughs> in, in a funny way, mm -hmm. but but difficult. And 
um, that that uh, Sandro has to be like, you know, I, you know, I've, I have to be here more than I'm able to be for this difficult child. And watching her negotiate that has been very interesting. Mm-hmm. Did you have thoughts about that? Um, yeah. No, I, one thing about the, you know, the realism of the show though, I, I can't believe a place like Pembroke doesn't have a childcare center. <laughs> Wheaton doesn't. Wheaton doesn't have a childcare center. So, I mean, I'm just saying I've lived this, you know? <laughs> oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. The childcare center at Florida state where I did my PhD had a waiting list that was t- two years long. Oh my right. goodness. Yeah. yeah. We, uh, even little Mount Aloysius, we have one, <laughs> we have one for everybody there, but, um, but no, I, my sort of, uh, like reaction to, um, June as a character is I felt like it was really kind of, um, her just trying to sort of navigate as an outsider, uh, yeah. amongst all these sort of insiders, right. That's sort of like uh, a kind of universal fear of academia. It's like, uh, everyone's sort of breaking into this rather intimidating monolithic culture. Right. Yeah. And, um, and of course it looks different from institution to institution. Um, and, and June's um, barrier, I suppose is sort of racial and gender. And, but it's just watching her sort of struggle to try and both manage these people as well as be accepted by them. Yes. Uh, it, yes. Uh, mm-hmm. that, it's really moving. And I think Sandro pulls it off uh, really well, particularly when you add in the, uh, the complicating factor of her, her family life, which is um, very complicated um, for anybody inside or outside of higher ed. And so, um, yeah, I thought that that aspect of, of her as a character was really sort of um, very moving and, and very well done. Yeah. Yeah. And it really is. It's tough. Like to be chair, I was just talking with somebody about this 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 past weekend among the the fellows that my research fellows that I'm working with. Being chair used to be kind of really honorific and it meant you were doing leadership. Now it's just work that nobody wants. And I have just refused to do it. And I mean, for 20 years, I've managed to say no, because I don't want my colleagues to hate me. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's just like, I mean, I, I don't think that any of them now hate me, but I know some of them will because you you have decisions, you make, you have power over them. And this, of course, the show works out by having her get this list. Here are the top three paid professors and how many students they have, right? Uh, so go in and uh, get them to retire, basically. And, you know, that's a lot of horrible kind of responsibility and, and power, right, that the chair has been put in. And so I thought that the whole, all of the conversations with the dean and the chair just were so cringingly like spot on to me that I, I, I mean, so Danny, I, I just, I can't, I mean, when you're saying it's unrealistic, I'm like, no, it's realistic. It's just, it's just sort of an exaggerated version of it, you know? Well, and I, I would say it's realistic for a particular aspect of higher education. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think that um, this looks like universally like higher education. This doesn't look like community colleges, right? This doesn't look like an institution like mine where we don't have tenure. Um, and so, um, and honestly, it, um, it may look a bit like where I went for my undergrad, um, Kent State uh, University, um, where, you know, the, the joke was, Kent Reed, Kent Wright, Kent State. Oh! I found, uh, that was, uh, <laughs> That's awesome! That was, that was insulting. I had wonderful <laughs> colleagues and amazing teachers, and so that was a, a terrible local stereotype. But, <laughs> but, um, um, but while I was there actually finishing my last year, the, the college 
really has continued to do this practice, like really does like keep the older faculty like on a conveyor belt. And so when I was there, like several of the professors I had, um, they ended up taking buyouts in that last semester. Um, and so they were really recycling through older faculty members um, uh, to kind of get them off campus, not for any teaching reasons, mind you, they were to a person, my favorite teachers that I had while I was there. Um, but it's just their salaries were higher, right? It's purely <laughs> an economic decision. And whoever, I don't even remember who the chair was at that point, but um, they had to sort of like, I don't believe they were actually making those decisions, but they were the intermediaries between the dean yes. level and uh, and the faculty members whose jobs were at stake. So there are those kinds of, uh, uh, that economic calculus does come in and the chair is kind of the, the, the focal point of a lot of that. Pressure. Yeah, and it's a it's a ton of pressure because we also had because of COVID and because of what's called the wedge, which is there's a demographic drop off, so that by 2024, there's just not going to be nearly as many students even out there to enroll in higher ed. We're yeah. we're talking about that. I teach in an independent school, you yep. know, in a in a high school, and yes, we've we've been talking about that. Yep. Yep. Since I started teaching, yeah, the great the great recessions. Uh, baby bust is mm -hmm. starting to hit high school, and yes, we've been talking about that for years. Yeah, they're calling yeah. it a cliff, a, a, a birth cliff in Pennsylvania. Okay, see, yeah. it's different words: the wedge, the birth cliff, yeah. the whatever. But it's coming, and this show mm -hmm. is is talking about it, you know, coming mm -hmm. because they've got lowered enrollments, and not just not just a, across the board college, but particularly in English departments because STEM and all these other things like. As we all know, uh, parents are misinformed that somehow it's going to be better for their students if they get a STEM job rather than, you know, liberal arts education. And I mean, I've had conversations just like this over and over again, trying to justify the liberal arts major and and try to explain to these students, but mostly to their parents through them, that majoring in English is not going to, you know, destroy your your chances for a job, right? Uh, so all of these conversations are just happening around me all the time. Yeah. And then, well, and even yeah. Ji Yoon has that conversation, yes. right? There was there was a discussion later in the series, so not in one of the three episodes we talked about for this, uh, but the um, right that there's the discussion about the the baby ceremony and the first birthday and sort of how that was going to work out. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So yeah. It's it's so it's so interesting to to see a show about what a lot of people consider to be just kind of archaic departments that not just these old faculty but the department itself and what is what's the line that she has it's something like it's like I came to the party late what was the line mm. you know I just heard it yeah I feel like I've I've arrived at the party after last call after last call right meaning that you 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 get this career you spend all this time getting a PhD. You want to teach English, and then there's hardly a program uh, going anymore. Like you have to justify your existence to administrators and to just the powers at large, right? To the market, um, and and so that's just like wow, you know. And and yet you see glimpses of both her and um, Yaz being like amazing teachers, right? Where the students are yes. actually very interested, and even Bill, he's actually a really good teacher. You can see once he starts yes. rolling. And, and then you realize that they are doing really good work that does matter, right? But they, they're they forced to sort of constantly justify themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about um, the ageism 
you mentioned Danny wanting to talk a little bit about that. And then Joan, the character of Joan, who is just hilarious. I mean, she is just super funny. She's my if, favorite. Yeah. Yes. Is that the same actress who played the law professor in the first Legally Blonde movie? Oh, is it? Is that the same? Is it the same actress? Because, I mean, I realize it's been 20 years It's like since the first oh, Legally Blonde you know, came out. I did I not look that up. It was her voice that oh. made me think it was her. Oh, maybe so. Because if so, if so, that's an awesome recast. Like, oh, it, it, yeah, it, yeah. I'd have to look that up. I don't know off the bat, but I, I mean, I know she's been in a couple of the other series that I've watched recently, and I'd be like, oh, that's the one from the chair. But I did not think about Legally Blonde. Yeah, what yes, a fun it character, is. Professor Strumwell. It, it's the same yes. same woman. Yes. Same woman. She's amazing. I oh, love her. Yeah, she's great. She's absolutely incredible. Yeah, yes. and and she. Like when she's in her office setting fire to her course evaluations, I'm like, oh man, <laughs> I'm right with you, sister. And I mean, I don't read mine either. And I've written a book and in, in on teaching, and I explained in there why I don't read my course evaluations. And I said it's because they're like lava; they burn you. There's not a stiff enough drink to read them, you know. Um, but you also can't afford in today's climate to be just like I don't care what my students think, right? And and. Yes. She's just like, I don't care what they think, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, the chair is trying to gently say to her, you kind of have to work on this. You have to you have to reinvent yourself, you know, uh, to survive as an English teacher um, in this in this climate. And she just doesn't want to do it. But <laughs> it's just so funny to me how they put her in the wellness center in the basement. Yeah. <laughs> With no Internet. Right. <laughs> Yeah, and that scene when she goes down with the chair and and the, the, the all the the football players are down there working out. It's just it's just yeah. so funny. The so. the multi-purposing of educational spaces just generally is a phenomenon that has flummoxed me for years, and I don't I yeah I I'm not quite sure. I've never heard. Uh, an explanation for why that makes sense to build three new gymnasiums and then, you know, put two floors of math classes above them. Like I don't, but I've, but I've watched it happen at, you know, multiple schools that, that I'm familiar with or that I've heard about. And I, yeah, I, I still don't get that one. (laughs) I I think there's a sense um, where I've seen this happen. I think there's a sense those athletic spaces particularly are the newest shiniest things on campus. Right. And they, they've, mm-hmm. they've been big, they've been the the subject and the result of big fundraising campaigns. Right. And I think there's a sense from management administration to get as much use out of those and get as many bodies okay. in those spaces as possible. That's my sort of like theory on it. I don't, I'm not really okay. research about this, but when I, when I have seen it happen, that's, I think they just want to squeeze as many bodies into it as possible okay. for the PR. All right. Yeah. That, that seems that as, as my husband would say, that passes the sniff test. That makes sense. <laughs> but, but nothing like what happens to poor Joan here. Right? So, yeah. Um, no, 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 nothing. <laughs> Although um, I did have a, a TA office that was in the uh, that was a cubicle in the uh, wet basement access of the classics building <laughs> at, at one of the schools that Ouch. I attended. So like it was yeah, it was it was super, super sketchy. <laughs> we were next to the um, 
oh shoot, what were we? We were next to like storage room C or something. <laughs> and you know, there were like 20 of us in this room. Yeah, it was, yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's talk about the, since this is the Christian Feminist Podcast, let's talk about the Title IX scenes and how they sort of operate with with, with Joan going in there. Uh, she's the only older woman faculty member that has been pushed in this other space. It's kind of an egregious example of the first person that they were get, willing to get rid of kind of thing. So what did you guys make of those scenes with the younger student worker, I guess, not not a student, but very young yeah, worker I, in the Title IX office. I suppose I wish I knew more about Title IX. Like, I, I'm assuming that Joan had a legitimate complaint. Oh, I definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I, and so, but that that does seem like sort of a, a, a legitimate case that this was a sort of uh, ageist and genderist uh, uh, piece of discrimination here um, against her. And so that does qualify as a Title IX thing. But I thought that that was interesting that's one of the subtle, like, the more subtle political critiques that I appreciated about the show was that they have this girl, this, like, undergraduate student working the desk who really doesn't even think of Title IX for serving that purpose, right? For her, yeah. she can she only conceives of it as for people, benefiting people of her generation and, and her class, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, and so she doesn't even know what to do uh, or how to interact with Joan. And, of course, Joan doesn't do herself any favors <laughs> that hilarious oh so funny your fanny yeah. is showing the the word fanny there is hilarious too. yes well yes. and even you know even the the young clerk who's working in the desk says have you talked uh what about your department chair have you talked to him yes so yes. even in that yeah. moment like yes. the title nine compliance officer sort of yeah, it sort of falls into kind of like the same lapses. Yeah, um, and she goes, should I write myself up? You know, because she, she recognized that she has fallen in the same yeah. lapses. <laughs> and it actually, the scenes with her kind of become a really great introduction to the fault line that the show is walking on about our current political climate, right? The sort of weird yeah. combination of, you know, these sort of social codes and the things you can say and can't say and then the desire to do justice, right, to people who have been victimized. That This is one of the fault lines that the show is brilliantly walking on. And, you know, yeah, go ahead, Sarah. Uh, whoa, well, and I love the fact that, of all things, she's a Chaucer scholar. Yes, so, yes. So like, she even asserts her own point that, like, these, yes. you know, these questions are not new. They're not these new. These questions are eight, you know, are 700 years old. Exactly so. Um, you know, but, like, people don't want to talk about literature that's 700 years old like but this is yeah so i i thought that was fantastic and i'm pretty sure is the is the picture that she has as her background photo on her laptop is it an illustration of the wife of bath oh probably i didn't take a close look at it like i mean it would it would have to be either the wife of bath or the prioress right and i'm pretty yeah. sure it, it looks more like the wife of bath because i didn't see any sort of we just finished teaching the canterbury tales to mm -hmm. our students so <laughs> in british literature um so you know so then she even has the wife of bath on there which i thought was another sort of brilliantly subtle Mm -hmm, move as mm -hmm. far as you know who Joan is and how she's developed as a character mm -hmm. yeah well the, the show definitely knows its literature right and and uh mm -hmm. you know, which is satisfying just as somebody who is right to English teacher who is watching this so so yeah that that would not surprise me if that was a deliberate uh mm -hmm. thing so 
Wonderful. Well, you know, it's uh, any more about Joan uh, and the Title IX stuff? Well, how does, yeah, how does Joan then, let's see, we talked a little bit about the, um, you know, about Joan as the older, you know, one of the the faculty members who's kind of sitting on the chopping block mm -hmm. um, and the sort of ageist uh, component. And then we talked about her as a woman. So where does that intersection of, you know, of Title IX and the ageism show, could we, is there anything else that maybe we could say about that or how Joan as an older female faculty member um, like sort of interacts with or converses with the other um, sort of the other faculty members who are sort of the other like doddering stereotypes of yeah. Yeah. departmental archaisms. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's, that's, I think an interesting point because I feel like if you want to bring in something like the concept of intersectionality in here, uh, she's, she's experienced ageism differently than the men are. Yeah. Um, the men are also being sort of targeted because of their age. Right. Um, mm -hmm. but she's experiencing it in a worse way because her gender is also a factor. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think that that's, um, a really important thing that she, uh, is representing, I suppose, uh, in terms of a political argument in this, um, in this show. But yeah, um, I also don't want to let the show off of the hook. I mean, it's showing an institution that is behaving in ageist ways, but the stereotypes of the older professors are in themselves kind of ageist stereotypes. That's right? true. Uh, and and, and yes. I think that I just yes, wanna, I would agree. I just want to defend every older colleague and professor I've ever had who really to a person without with one exception there was one person who sucked <laughs> uh, to almost uh, almost to a person all of my the older faculty members that i have like worked with and studied under have been fantastic and mm -hmm. didn't just calcify uh in their positions mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. all the way until 70 years old some of them and yeah, um, no, yes. and so i feel like it's a little bit unfair uh of the show uh, of amanda pete and and her co-creators uh, yeah. to that was an easy card to play, and I think they played it a little lazily. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. They did play it lazily because, in point of fact, it for every institution that's a major English department, right, in a major university, there there are going to be several older faculty members who are like like the like Bill the God, right? In my family, you're a God, you yeah. know, and they they are effective teachers, and they aren't just phoning it in, and they are, you know, they they don't have the yellowing you know, notes, lecture notes, and, and so on. And I've taught with, with these people, and I'm hoping to be one myself since I'm getting up there, <laughs> you know. But, yeah, it's an easy target, and it is kind of, it is an ageistic uh, stereotype. You're 100% right. But it's also equally true that there are those faculty members who have, after they've gotten tenure, kind of given up, um, and, and uh, they are so, like, living back in the 60s and 70s, and and don't understand the realities that we're that we're in right now that we you know as a department that we have to that we really can't afford to be yeah. old school right <laughs> true yeah. yeah so but you're right it's too easy of a target well the political fault lines in that um are interesting to me because of this article that's in our kind of reading section we do the knowing reading and passing on in this in this podcast and I wanted us to read the Atlantic Monthly's piece called The New Puritans, which, uh, when I read it, just was so 
depressing and also just so like, oh my goodness, this is just spot on and this is what's happening right now. And the author is making the argument that that Puritanism that was described by Nathaniel Hawthorne in The Scarlet Letter uh, is happening now, uh, that people are being tried in the court of public opinion without due process all the time, losing their jobs which or, or the reputation, which is effectively losing their job and their power. And so I brought that into the conversation because of the Professor Hitler scene that I wanted us to, to focus on. So I will just start that. What did you think about the Professor Hitler scene? Um, for those of you who haven't seen the show, the very popular Professor Bill tur- turns around and does a Heil Hitler maneuver, and then, of course, it's caught on somebody his phone, and then they put a little Hitler hat on him, a little SS hat, and it goes viral, and then all of a sudden he's, like, in danger of losing his job. So. And within the context, he's talking about absurdism and fascism, and sort of where you know where the two intersect in the class on death and modernism, yeah. which yeah. like totally makes sense. And yeah, but you strip that gesture out of its context, and it becomes a meme that gets Bill in a whole lot of trouble. Um, yes, but, but we so, are facing a society that you know because of this yeah. new Puritanism is always taking things out of context. Nobody ever has a chance to defend themselves and and, be, and losing their reputations for stuff they didn't even do, you know, uh, having being forced to apologize for, for stuff that they didn't mean. Right, and so this is happening, right? So I just wanted to hear some general conversation about that. Yeah, I, I think that that, I mean, it's like ripped from the headlines almost. That totally, scene, right? yeah. Um, and, and, and it's... But again, I would say, it, like, to me, this is a phenomenon of very elite spaces. Uh, I, I would say that uh, Good point. this is not going, this is not really happening in the places that, frankly, most people teach in. Uh, and and it, I'm thinking particularly of the, the class on Melville when a student interrupts the lecture and starts talking about Melville's abusive relationships. And like, I, you're not going to get a class, realistically, you're not going to find a class of people who've read through Moby Dick and read through the feminist criticism that gets them to that mm-hmm. point well, right, prior to right. class, right? So I feel like it is, um, it takes place in a space of privilege in and of itself, I feel like, um, which is, um, it's not necessarily a privilege completely defined by, you know, gender or race, but by sort of social class and, and the kind of school you went to to get into a place like Penn correct, Park, right? correct. Uh, in the first place, right? That will and give so, you the right to be the snowflake who's there outgoing, accusing <laughs> the professor, right? Because they're, they're all exactly. snowflakes. And look, I've been at the other end of snowflakeism, and I, I don't want to go into it because I can lose my job, right? But I've been <laughs> in the space yeah. before. And, yeah. and it comes from elite privilege, right? In a lot of ways, even though what they're doing is saying, I'm speaking for the victims, yeah. Right. Yes. All the people that um, in that town hall, I think they yes, call it. Town hall. Where, um, mm-hmm. is, um, they're basically they're just quoting Twitter. Uh, I mean, those are Correct. those are phrases that's taken straight from Twitter. You see it in every one of these uh, whatever conversations that we have on there, and so they're just sort of latching onto a slogan um, for the kind of performative. 
uh, effect of appearing to be an ally or whatever to the Jews, right? Mm-hmm. Even though none of, none of them, I don't think, in the uh, the crowd. Uh, well, there might be one one by one 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 kid was, but I can't remember. But um, um, but yeah. Anyway, so I think that yeah, it's a uh, an interesting window into kind of a political machine, like a, a mechanical approach to politics um, mm. that that spaces like Twitter um, really kind of initiate and help people practice, right? And so when they are uh, confronted with a situation like Bill's, um, they go to the script that they've been sort of like, uh, they, they've embodied through all this interactivity on social media for these kinds of mm-hmm. situations. Well, go ahead, sir. The, uh, the, well, as as... We've been talking, there are several ideas that have come to mind for me. And one of them is, uh, and, and I think Bill speaks to this, that like, like, it's good that they're upset. Like, yeah, this he's is proud like of them. what we're yeah. like, this is what we're training them to do. But yeah. at the same time, they're also, I think in, in a space, whether, you know, if, if we think like cognitively from like a a cognitive developmental standpoint or culturally having grown up in the Twitterverse and the Zuckerverse, um, that like, I I have no idea if that's been trademarked yet, but I've been referring to it as the Zuckerverse. I think that's great, Sarah. (laughs) Trademark it right now. You can't say it. Right. Um, but like, but they're at the same time that Bill is saying, yeah, it's good that they're doing this. Um, they're also, you know, even when, um, Ji Yoon talks about how, what they're doing and, and Yaz says like, what we're trying to do is encourage them to think critically. And yet that's there, if they're doing it, it's imperfect, which maybe is part of the learning process of being in higher mm-hmm. education. Um, one of the things that, and and I think about that because this is my random flight of ideas, is that one of my uh, previous supervisors had pointed out to me one time when we were discussing a disciplinary case that the purpose of our institution was to educate students towards academic excellence or towards moral excellence, that we don't ex- we shouldn't expect them to be excellent when they show up mm-hmm. we should be helping them get there and so i'm yeah. not sure if that's you know like that was the potential for a teachable moment that fell mm-hmm. like that sort of fell apart um or mm-hmm. if there if there was intended to be some irony in the fact that a department that is striving to encourage students to think critically and to understand things in context is finding itself on the receiving end of a firestorm based on taking something out of context, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, like depriving it of its context and then trying to draw conclusions from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but we are all, all also empowering uh, students to, um, to put themselves in positions of being like the more, the ultimate moral judge right, over situations that they don't have the, all the information about, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and they're, I don't know, I think something is different. Like, how can we, what's the difference, right, between the 60s protester when Bill says, you know, like, well, I sat right there on your desk with my naked butt, you know, and protested <laughs> whatever. Uh, uh, you know, yeah, I think it was right? African, D, uh, it was South yes. African, yes. Apartheid was, yeah. or whatever. Yes. Right. Apartheid, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And, and the, but the difference between that and what's going on now, I think the show is trying to 
um, not emphasize, but reveal, right? Yeah. So it, we need to talk about it. And Hitler is the perfect example, right? Because everybody hates Hitler, right? <laughs> and, and we can universally agree, Hitler bad. One of my friends used to call it reductio ad nauseum, you know, if you wanted to just say this is the worst possible thing, right? Um, I so, really like that. Yeah, right? it's so good. That's brilliant. Yeah, it really is. And and so, it, they, but they they choose something that is meant to be a, a like a joke, right? And, but that people could definitely find offensive, right? It's a brilliant mm-hmm. choice. Right. So because it's not easy to say the students are wrong about what they've said, but Mm -hmm. you can also see this is really problematic. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, I think one interesting potential difference is that when you're talking about 60s civil rights marches, um, you know, war against Vietnam, the apartheid mm-hmm. example that Bill gives, those are sort of like very clear, um, tangible situations. I mean, mm-hmm. civil rights a little bit more, um, a little more abstract, but there's still like laws that people are sort of arguing for. But when you get into the realm of identity politics, um, it becomes a lot less tangible. Um, and, and I think that there's no, the, the sort of the goals become less clear <laughs> beyond mm-hmm. for the kind of political activism. And, and I wonder if that, isn't part of the, the distinction that Bill's not prepared for. Uh, for That's for a good way to put it. The goals yeah. are different. So it's almost like the, and this is where I'm going to go back to that article, the new Puritans, the goals of the Puritans are to purify and to sort of judge, right? The goals yeah. are not to provide justice for people, right? If, if your goal, if your goal is like, I'm doing the civil rights march, whatever, because our laws are, unjust toward black people right we can all agree with that but yeah. if if it's like my goal is to punish you for for offending me that's a different goal or offend or uh, or offending someone offending somebody that yeah. i imagine right? that i imagine yeah. right <laughs> yeah, from yeah, my yeah. position of elite privilege yes. right yeah. Um, yeah no yeah go ahead um oh well what and one of the things that I, that might add another layer to this. And, and as I think about it, you know, thinking about that Atlantic article, the new Puritans, um, the original Puritans were also trying to purify religion, right? So they, Mm -hmm. you know, as part of, um, you know, as parting to, part of trying to distill down Christianity to its most pure form. And then that, you know, sort of thinking about that, then either, at, you know, their, their sort of approach to a Hester Prynne type character um, in the Hawthorne as either an extension of, or perhaps a, a uh, I don't want to call it derailing, but, you know, sort of a, a, a sort of veering away from that original intention was something that I was thinking about. And with the new Puritans, like what is that distilled, like what is the, and I think this is what we've been talking about. Like if the goals are different, like what is that distilled sort of pure form that could be, or would be at the heart of that effort? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's, that's a, it's a fair about question in, it, in the article. Yeah, it, 
these vague ideas of like inclusivity or something like mm-hmm. that, right? Tolerance um, and tolerance, yeah, yeah. These sort of platitudes. I don't want to say platitudes like they're bad things, right? They're good things, of course, but they mm-hmm. are things that are negotiated in time and space. And, and so mm-hmm. um, the yeah, and that makes it much more complicated. Mm-hmm. It actually reminds me what they're the, when you were just talking, Sarah, of like it's almost like. A more kind of like it's like from Oedipus. It's, it's sort of you have to sort of like purge the the city of sin by whoever's the totally. sinful person. Yeah, uh, you have to sort of expel them from the city. And uh, and and I feel in a lot of ways there's sort of like an an Oedipal kind of uh, form of redemption here rather than a, a a Christian one. Although maybe you can say the Puritan one was also in that way too. Well, yeah, and I've done a lot of thinking about Puritanism in America, and one of the most, and I mention this all the time, so listeners, if you've been a long-time listener of, my, of this show and my particular podcast, sorry, but the book that yeah. has influenced me more than anything else when it comes to this issue of Americanism is The Puritan Origins of the American Self by Sack Van Berkovich. And his argument was that this sort of us versus them, the demonizing of the other and judging the other, that was at the core of kind of the worst parts of Puritanism, not that everything in Puritanism was bad, right? Mm-hmm. It is really what has sort of shaped the American character in the worst possible way. And we are now like the, the chickens are coming home to roost in the worst way right now with this kind of us versus them, mm. you know, like you're, you're going to just mm. constantly like cast aspersions on other people. And without even for a moment thinking, would I say this if, about, would I want somebody to say this about me? You know, this is happening right now in the diocese that, that I'm the Anglican diocese that I'm a part of, like people accusing, mm-hmm. you know, ACNA two, like the Anglican church in North America too, you know, accusing people without having all the facts. You know, um, but but it's this us versus them kind of um, uh, of othering, demonizing. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think as you know, as another extension of that, um, I know you had mentioned uh, a quote that you know uh, that we could bring to bear on this, um, and it's from the Atlantic article and about being forced to publicly apologize. Yeah. Can you go ahead and, and read I that? Because I think it's it's yeah. really useful. Yeah. Yes. Um, So the quote begins, not that everyone really wants an apology. One former journalist told me that his ex-colleagues, quote, don't want to endorse the process of mistake, apology, understanding, forgiveness. They don't want to forgive, end quote. Instead, he said, they want to punish and purify. But the knowledge that whatever you say will never be enough is debilitating. If you make an apology and you know in advance that your apology will not be accepted, that it is going to be considered a move in a psychological or cultural or political game, then the integrity of your introspection is being mocked and you feel permanently marooned in a world of unforgivingness. And that is a truly unethical world. Um, and and the uh, thinking about uh, our show as the Christian feminist podcast, mm-hmm. the idea of not wanting to forgive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is but to punish. That really, yep. that really struck me because whose, whose responsibility ultimately is it? Right. Right. Um, right. You know, to punish if punishment is to be had. Right. Um, and, and is it actually ours to do ultimately right and and so yeah i thought that was really really fascinating that you pulled that quote um to bring into this conversation because yeah forgiveness 
forgiveness is is it mm-hmm. right like mm-hmm. forgiveness is what we should be working towards and and that that it's not is i think something that that i find very sad at times mm-hmm. and we're in a situation where first of all people are getting accused of stuff they didn't actually do and then being forced to apologize so that's part of the problem um, when they are forced to apologize, if even if they did do it, they're seen as in, as insincere, and then they're not forgiven. So mm-hmm. this is just a horrible situation to be in. Like, and people are being their careers really are being destroyed. You know, um, here, let me give you an example. That's that, um, and I and I again, I appreciate this show that didn't try to deal with the the harder issues of race, but just kind of stay safe with the reductio ad nauseum, right? But um, the there was a professor in Wisconsin who was like a teacher of the year kind of thing. And he was reading James Baldwin, reading James Baldwin and used the N word because James Baldwin had used it. Okay. And then got suspended. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. You know what I'm saying? This is, this yeah. is, this is really tough stuff. Like yeah. this, this is like really, really hard. Um, because if you're not really out, like to either help somebody and forgive them and really like work together in a world, but you're out for some other goal, then you're not even going to care about the person's intent at all. Yeah. Right. I mean, his intent, this is an award-winning teacher, right? And I, and I promise you from reading James Baldwin, he was not like adding something to the N word to make it, you know, right. Sure. (laughs) So this is where we've gone so wrong in my opinion. And yeah. I like the show is, is trying to, to, to take a look at that. And the article is trying to take a look at that. Yeah. I, um, like, I have to say just to that, that has actually given me pause. Of, I, I actually have made a decision. For, there's two reasons. I, one being that I don't want to put myself in a position where somebody's recording me. <laughs> I don't think that would ever happen where I work. But I agree. I, I, I don't want to do it. I don't ever I actually, want to be recorded. I will not let people yeah. record me. <laughs> But when we're ever like talking, like this semester, I'm teaching a class on the literature of Pittsburgh. And so we're reading a lot of August Wilson and he'll use that word a lot. Uh, in, I in love August place. Wilson. Yay. Yeah, for sure. He's amazing. Right. And um, um, but I make it a point, say when we read this, we are not actually going to uh, say that word. We'll say the N word. Um, and then when I show clips, I'll let the clips play, speak for itself. Right. But mm-hmm. um, but partially it's not just that. But I have to think about my own kind of particular location. I am in a part of rural Pennsylvania, um, and it is not unheard of that there are very uh, racially backwards people living in uh, oh, my yeah, area. Yeah, and yeah. so I don't want to give anybody potential. My students are all wonderful. I would never accuse my students of ever having, but just on the off chance, <laughs> I don't want to sort of normalize uh, the use of that uh, word. I want to right. make sure that everybody understands the seriousness of it. And so right. I don't, uh, uh, that's the choice I made based on my own context, but it's also true that i'm the the warning of other people's experience is a little chilling Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i think we are in a situation now where and i mean i'll speak for myself i teach differently now than i did two years ago Mm -hmm. you know because of uh the experiences that i've had um and I, i again i can't go into them publicly in this forum but that you know that make me afraid so so like it's one thing if I'm giving a recorded like a speech that I've written out and then I can be really careful about everything I say but teaching is not like that right mm-hmm. 
at least my teaching is not like I don't give lectures. I question and I, you know, I say things quickly and on the fly. Um, yeah. And if I were to be recorded and have something like that, you know, used against me, that would be very easy to do. And now I'm afraid. Yeah. You know, and I've never been afraid in the classroom before. This is different. This is different. Yeah. Yeah. Can I, um, I actually, and just to go back, I'm sorry, Sarah, if I'm stepping on, uh, did you have something you wanted to add? Uh, no, no, not at all. Not well, at this I, moment. No. <laughs> I, I, I just feel like I'm talking too much. You, you, you hit on one of my favorite subjects here, <laughs> Christina. So, um, I, uh, uh, recently it's just occurred to me how quickly, these standards and these kinds of um, norms yes. have, cha- have yes. changed, right? Um, like he, the, actually, the author, it was like five months it can change. Like, Yes. Yeah. I, I, I purposely did not say this on Twitter, but on Facebook, I said, I want them to invent a time machine just so that I can send humanities graduate students from 2021 into a graduate humanities class in 2011 so they can talk about how problematic Dave Chappelle and Margaret Atwood are. Yeah, right? Yes, so, yes. Um, yes. No one would know what the heck anybody's talking yeah, about. Yeah. That's how quickly things can change. Yeah. You don't have to go back to 2011. Go back to 2015. Go back to 2015. Know, go back to five yeah. months ago. And, and the yeah. article is right about that. <laughs> exactly. Sarah? Yeah. <clears throat> No, it's, um, you know, my um, my situation at this point is a little bit different, um, but uh, because I because I do teach in an independent school and and I teach in um, uh, and I teach in a parochial school. So um, so one of the things that I have actually felt um, more than anything, fairly fortunate um to be able to do is that if if i'm not sure how to approach something um even something that could potentially be controversial is to be able uh to be given the liberty um and to be encouraged to uh to try to understand what i'm trying to convey to my students through the lens of um you know, through the lens of our Catholic Christianity. And so like, where, where can I find guidance within the tradition of the church, you know, within the Christian tradition that can help to navigate some of these issues. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And, and that has been really, really wonderful to mm-hmm. be able to do um, in my most recent teaching experiences, particularly yeah. as things otherwise seem to shift so wildly, like having, having that anchor that we can, that we can ground ourselves in, mm-hmm. um, or, or, well, that anchor that we can, you know, hold ourselves to, you know, mm-hmm. if we feel like we're starting to become unmoored, mm-hmm. um, is something that has been, I, I hope really beneficial for my students. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Christian, yeah, I have a sim- go, ahead. go ahead. Well, I have a similar, I would just say I have a similar situation. I, I teach at the sisters of mercy school and we have the, the mercy values that we can always sort of connect all these difficult conversations to. I, I, I could totally concur. And Christians should be leaders in the the giving of forgiveness, the always putting all of these social justice questions in terms of what can we learn from these sins? How can we, you know, repent? How can we move forward? Like, we should be leaders in this. We should not be leaders at casting stones, you know, um, or allowing, uh, you know, empowering students to cast stones in the worst ways, right? But uh, to, to truly empower critical thinking and really moving forward in justice. Uh, so 
we really we have to set ourselves apart from this kind of new Puritan culture. I think to to really be faithful, um, faithful in the church, and 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 part of that is forgiveness and just you know recognizing that if if my goal really is to understand you, to understand your situation, then I'm not going to sit there and cast stones at you on Twitter. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm just I'm not going to do that because I'm just doing that to make myself look better or to say that I'm yeah. right and you're wrong. And that never got anywhere, right? Puritanism, yeah. and, you know, it's just not a good thing. And it's funny because uh, I've always talked about working at Wheaton and, and how different it is to teach something like the Puritans, which I've taught, you know, early American literature a few times. When I teach at a secular institution, I have to convince that the students that the Puritans weren't crazy. And when I teach <laughs> at a Christian institution, I have to say the Puritans were crazy. <laughs> you know, so it's just a totally different kind of a conversation that I'm, that I'm trying to have. So anyway, we are, we're coming up on time. We could talk so much more about the cancel culture, and I hope that we'll do further episodes um, on the CFP on the issue of the cancel culture because it is on us, and yeah. uh, there is a lot to, more to talk about. But Can we I are coming up on time. Yeah, go ahead. Point. Yes, please. Just as a food for thought, it's also interesting that at the same time there's this parallel doing the same thing on the right with this sort of critical race theory uh, hysteria, right? And so uh, it's interesting that this is not like uh, a, a function of any particular political ideology. It's something about the general zeitgeist. Exactly so. And I think it's related to this Puritan origins of the American self thing, this demonizing of the other that's deep in our DNA. And it is problematic and it is, it's, killing, it's killing our polity. Um, yeah. And it, it's, it's bad. So we definitely need to address this. We're not going to solve it right in an hour, but <laughs> but at least the chair kind of has some fun with it, helps you to see that these things are happening and they're real. And uh, yeah, we can mock them a little bit. And at least we still can until the cancel culture comes along and says even mocking that is needs to be canceled. <laughs> but anyway, so let's go to passing on. What are we passing on? Sarah, let's start out. All right. Um, I th- this evening I am going to recommend uh, the current season of the Abiding Together podcast. Uh, it's season ten, and the three women who run the podcast are uh, spending some time, uh, four episodes at a time, over this season, and then actually uh, going into season eleven. Um, examining the various identities of women. And so they started with daughter and then moved into sister and are going to move into mother and bride next uh, in their next season. And since part of what our conversation has uh, covered this evening has included June's own um, efforts to try to navigate her own identities as daughter, as mother, Mm. um, particularly as daughter and as mother, um, I thought that uh, our listeners might uh, find something encouraging from uh, what these women have had to say and their explorations of these identities. I have listened to the series on daughter. It's very powerful, and I'm very excited to see what's coming up in the series on sister and then next season on, um, on uh, mothers and brides. Great. Thank you so much. Danny. Yes. So I am not all the way through the series yet, but I've been I'm about almost through it. Um, there's an HBO Max series 
called Pray, Obey, Kill. Um, it's a, a true crime documentary series, uh, and it's in Swedish, so you have to put up with subtitles. Uh, but uh, but it's a beautiful language to listen to, actually. Uh, but the uh, the premise of it is there's a, a I don't want to say cult uh, exactly, although I think that's probably the appropriate term, but there's a, a religious sect, there's some, a Pentecostal religious sect in uh, Sweden uh, that live kind of in a, a community of sorts. And there's a, 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 a murder that happens that instigates this uh, investigation. And as the story sort of unfolds in unexpected ways, we find out that the kind of the figurehead of this community is, a, is one of the, the women in the, uh, in the, the religious group. And this is like coming out of just a, a mainstream Pentecostal, uh, religious sect, uh, in, uh, in, in Sweden. And, but somehow she gets it in her idea in her mind that the biblical discussion of the bride of Christ, um, does not mean the entire church, but literally her, uh, and her community begins to, uh, sort of think of her as this person who, she is going to literally marry Jesus in the afterlife. Um, and it, that's sort of the center of this really interesting kind of conspiracy murder uh, cons- uh, plot that uh, unfolds uh, in the uh, in this little tiny community in the snow in Sweden. But uh, it's a really interesting um, window into how a tiny theological, not even tiny, but uh, a relatively normal religious community can go way off the rails with a small change in theology, right? That would just infect mm. everything else. And so it's really interesting in the, in the, the woman, this bride of Christ figure um, is just a fascinating um, figure to, to kind of follow her development in this. So I, I, I've been sort of entranced by it. It's a really interesting um, show with really beautiful uh, cinematography there. They've built like a, a model, replica of the set so they can do all kinds of interesting almost cartoony effects for the reenactments it's, it's a really kind of aesthetically and theologically fascinating show that has to do with a woman at the head of a religious community wow that's really fascinating those are great recommendations both of you thank you so much and i'm really no one's going to be shocked but i'm going to rec- recommend sack van berkovich's puritan origins of the american self because i think that more people really need to understand the current political climate that we're in and uh where it comes from in order for us to to uh to move forward so all right well thank you for listening to the christian feminist podcast and we'd love to hear from you so if you have a topic or a reading recommendation for future shows or if you just want to drop us a line you can do so at the christian feminist podcast at gmail.com you can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at CHR Radio Network and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at Christian Humanist blog, christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Sarah Thomas and Danny Anderson, I'm Christina Bieber-Lake. Tune in in two weeks when we're going to discuss Bridgerton, I believe. So until then, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love.